Hello, everybody, and welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Slamini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. Well, this podcast is going to be jam-packed with good stuff. We'll, of course, have a lot of stuff on the draft. And in the second quarter, I'll have a one-on-one with Jets coach Adam Gase in the third quarter, Twitter mailbag, and in the fourth quarter, a big, big finish. Emphasis on big. But for now, let's talk about the draft. And I'm not going to give it a grade because I hate these letter grades. Mostly they're stuff that editors make us do. And I'm going to avoid the letter grade, but I will say this. I really like what Joe Douglas did here in his first draft with the Jets. I'll give you some of my likes and dislikes. You know, I like that they hit their two biggest needs, offensive tackle and wide receiver with Makai Becton and Denzel Mims. I think in the later rounds, they got backups who can develop into future starters. And that You can't always say that about a draft. I've certainly seen that happen a lot with the Jets. Uh, But these guys, I think Ashton Davis can develop into a starter. LaMichael Perrine, Jabari Zuniga, Cam Clark. These guys, you look at them and you say, and you talk to scouts, and they have the ability to project as frontline players. Maybe not this year, but in later years. For now, they'll be depth players. I think Joe Douglas showed flexibility. You saw it in the second round. He trades the twenty, uh, the 48th pick. He goes down 11 and takes Mims. So when you add it all up and you figure out all the wheeling and dealing, he turned the 48th pick into Mims, quarterback James Morgan, Cam Clark, and the 2021 sixth-round pick they got from the Patriots, which they originally gave to the Patriots last September in the Demarius Thomas trade. So essentially, they just got it back. So they basically rented Demarius Thomas for nothing for a year. So good flexibility there. Things I didn't like, they traded a sixth rounder for Quincy Wilson. And you're going to say, yeah, but it really didn't cost them anything because that was the sixth rounder that they got back from the Colts in the Nate Hairston trade last summer. So yeah, maybe it was for nothing, but I don't think Quincy Wilson's a good player. I've done research on him. I've talked to scouts who know him. I don't think he's a good cornerback, and there have been some questions about his practice habits. So I'm not a fan of that move. I don't like the fact that they took only one wide receiver. This was a historically deep draft for the position, and they took only one. I think that could come back to Burnham. Didn't quite understand the logic of taking James Morgan in the fourth round. Uh, We're talking about a project quarterback who will be their third stringer this year. Um, I thought that was too early to go for a quarterback. And I think one thing we learned about Joe Douglas in this draft is that he is reliant, uh, or maybe reliance too strong a word, but he definitely uses analytics in his scouting. And he came across in some of the interviews, he was talking about Jabari Zuniga and his pressure percentage. Uh, so, you know, analytics, big thing in the NFL now. You know, some scouts and GMs embrace it, some don't. I think Joe Douglas definitely embraces it. So, uh, let's talk about Becton, the first round pick. You know, I think he'll start at left tackle. They haven't said that, but that's my indication. Uh, you know, high upside, obviously. I mean, I think they, he first caught Joe Douglas's eye last fall. Uh, one, one of their area scouts gave him a, a really high grade. And as Joe was reviewing the grades at his office, they jumped out at him and he popped in some tape. And I think he popped in the Notre Dame game, which was the opener. And Becton played really well in that game. Notre Dame had two defensive ends that were drafted. 
So he faced good competition and had a good game. And I think that was the moment that Becton was on the Jets' radar. You should check out some of his highlight reels. Just go on YouTube. I mean, for an offensive lineman, you know, he has some highlight film moments. Uh, unfortunately, probably his best one came against my alma mater, Syracuse, last November 23rd on a running play. He blocked their left edge player, number 57. He blocked him at least 50 feet out of the play. He took him off the screen on a running play, uh, just like boom, 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 three shoves, and the kid was all, literally off the field. So, you know, those type of stuff, that happened a lot with Becton. He just threw guys around on the college level. Uh, I like the fact that he only had two penalties last year and 684 snaps. He did have eight as a freshman, but only two last year. Gave up three sacks in three years, so that's pretty good. Um, you know, some scouts say he can get a little lazy in his footwork, and there's also the character issue with the flag drug test, and, you know, he's got this weight thing. I mean, he is 364 pounds. I think that's minor stuff. To me, I wouldn't even classify it as a red flag. Everybody I talk to say he he's motivated. He wants to be good at football. That's encouraging. Uh, he, I don't think he was their highest-ranked offensive tackle. I think they had Jed, Jedrick Wills higher. Uh, I think they also may have had Andrew Thomas higher. So he was probably their third guy. But, hey, the first two were gone. They took their third guy. I think it was a good pick at 11. Now, Denzel Mims, here's a guy who really helped his stock in the postseason. Big combine running under 4-4. He also had the best three-cone drill among the wide receivers. So you know he's not just a straight-line speed guy. He's got good change of direction. Played really well at the Senior Bowl. That caught the eye of the Jet Scouts for sure. Um, here's what one scout from another team uh, told me about Mims. He said he's a tall, long, good-framed, vertical outside receiver. Needs some root refinement and development. He made some size plays, dropped a few. Didn't like his time speed on film, but he did time well at the Combine. Uh, the drop thing is interesting. 20 drops in three years is a lot. He had eight, 11 in 2018, but he did play with a hand injury that year, so that may have been a factor. And one stat that jumped out at me, I mean, he's really good in the red zone. There's no doubt about it. I think most of his catches last year came in the red zone. Uh, most of his touchdown catches, which were 12, only three yards per catch, yards after catch. 3.0 yak is extremely low for a receiver that big and that fast. So that jumped out at me uh, on the negative side. Now, Ashton Davis, third round, I think he projects as their number three safety. You could see him in some big nickel packages with Adams and May. Marcus May's entering the last year of his contract. Now the Jets have a free safety here who could potentially be an heir apparent. You, you can't dismiss that fact. Uh, I think Davis, is he didn't work out at the Combine because of a groin injury. I think he would have tested well. He looks fast on film. He plays fast, according to scouts. Uh, but they don't have an official 40 time on him. They couldn't have a pro day because of the pandemic. One concern about him, missed 17% of his tackles, according to our ESPN stats. That's a concern. One good thing, only one penalty last year in 600-plus defensive snaps. That's very encouraging. Also in the third round, they get Florida defensive end Jabari Zuniga. I think he'll fit in as a situational player in sub packages this year. Kind of a tweener, you know, not an outside linebacker, more of a 4-3 defensive end. So how does he fit in the base? That's, don't know. We'll see. He'll be situational this year. 
He produced when he was on the field. Now, he did have a high ankle injury last year, which cost him a lot of time. He played only 183 snaps last year, and that's a low number. He had three sacks, 16 pressures. Like I said, good production. He had five penalties, which is a lot for that amount of playing time. Ran four sixes at the combine, and that's really when he started turning uh, getting people's attention, had a monster game against Miami, and he had a good game against LSU. So that shows you he could uh, he plays against good competition. And uh, lastly, we're going to touch on running back LaMichael Perrine out of Florida. Big, solid back between the tackles runner. Here's a couple of things that jumped out at me. Average 4.7 per carry in the SEC, so that's good competition. And also, this jumped out at me. His best quarter was the fourth quarter. He averaged 6.9 in the fourth quarter. That tells you about his stamina. That's a good thing. Uh, another very impressive thing, no fumbles last year. 132 carries, no fumbles, only had one fumble the previous year, so he's good on ball security, good on yards after contact, 3.3 per carry last year. The, the question is the speed. You know, he ran 4.6, so you wonder if he has that extra gear. He can catch the ball well, and so in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Le'Veon Bell in terms of skill set. Not on that level, but just kind of a poor man's Le'Veon Bell. I think he'll be a backup to Bell this year, and he should factor prominently in special teams. So, like I said, a good overall draft for the Jets. The question is, how quickly can they get these guys up to speed? It's going to be really tough for rookies around the league this year because of the pandemic and the restrictions, no offseason. They're probably going to have some sort of abbreviated training camp, if there is even a training camp. But on paper, I like what I see. We'll be back in a second. All right, we're joined by Adam Gase. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. No problem, Rich. I'm glad I could be a part of your 32nd season with the Jets. Covering yes, the Jets. 30, 32nd. Uh, I'm glad you updated that because I hadn't thought about that because uh, we've talked about being 31 years. But so here we go. I mean, this is a, a season like any – like nothing we've ever experienced before. And as a coach, what has it been like for you? I mean, you're a guy who spends an inordinate amount of hours in the office. What's it been like working at home? You know, it's it's been interesting in the aspect of I don't think I've been around my, my family this much. Um, it's been good, though. My kids have, you know, they're, they, have to, they have schoolwork still. My wife has to teach them. You know, that's that's kind of unique. That's fun to walk into every once in a while, into a little bit of a buzzsaw every once in a while. I think the appreciation for teachers has gone extremely up throughout the country. Um, but, you know, I found, you know, a low area in my house to, to work out of where, you know, we were able to do go through our whole draft process, do our interviews with players, um, you know, just working with our players currently and, you know, finding those, you know, a few hours a day to – to just kind of get some quiet and, and and get these guys kind of just caught up to with what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, let, let's talk about the draft because that's still fresh in everybody's mind. You get you get Makai Becton in the uh, in the first round, and uh, you you've probably never coached a guy this big. I mean, right? I'm there. I'm not going out on a limb by saying that. No, I mean, I'm, you know, it's it's interesting when when I when I first. Um, met him at the combine because it, because we were still, we were still rolling. We, we, we interviewed him at the combine. I remember him walking into the room thinking that is a, that is a large man and just shaking his hand and, and just 
just the his size. It's a, it, it, when he walks in the room, you feel it. And just kind of going through the film of, you know, that we were going through and just seeing how physical he plays. Because a lot of times it's like we get some glimpses of these guys hitting the combine and then just hearing these guys talk, it's, it's you know, interesting to kind of hear his mindset, just the nastiness he played with, the intelligence he had for the game, you know, kind of him knowing exactly what, what you know, he, he was trying to do as a player. I mean, he is, he is probably – the biggest guy I've ever been around as far as in the offensive line room, for sure. Now you've been around some good tackles. You had Tunsil in Miami. Um, where does Beckham like, stack? Clady in Denver. I would say Clady and Tunsil would be the two guys that I've been right. around that I've been really impressed with. Yeah, right. I forgot about Clady in Denver. I mean, uh, he was a Pro Bowl guy. Uh, a completely different body type than, right. than Makai. How does Makai's athleticism – fit into your scheme from because you like to run some outside zone plays and that requires at you know athleticism among your linemen how does Makai fit into that I, I think he brings a, a, the uniqueness he brings into me is is he can do everything you need him to do in the run game for sure you could do wide zone tight zone gap schemes he fits in all that stuff he's athletic enough to do the wide zone stuff um, which you know excites us because that's something that we're really looking to to really get back to we we probably went away from it a little bit last year or quite a bit of it last year. And I think we're, you know, looking to try to make sure that we make that more of a staple for ourselves. Um, he fits into that, that well. And, and, you know, we're him being able to move guys off the ball is a, there's no question he can do that. I think pass pro is always going to be something when you're a young player, getting used to kind of how you have to handle these defensive ends in the NFL, the more experienced guys you play that have unbelievable get off, you have to understand you better have a really good game plan heading into that because these guys, they study so much film. They know all your little – the little tips that you're giving away you don't even know you're doing. You know, these guys take advantage of it, and, and that's going to be the, his learning curve is how, how to figure out how to block these elite ends. Well, one of the things in the media we've been focusing on because, you know, as you know from being around us for a year, we like to focus on the quarterback. You know, what a shock, right? Slightly. Um, and a lot of the post-draft talk is about how Makai is going to help Sam Darnold, you know, protection-wise. But no one's really brought up is how he's going to help Le'Veon Bell in the run-blocking game. So how how can Le'Veon's performance be improved by having, you know, an entirely new offensive line, basically, plus a Makai Becton at left tackle? How does that help Le'Veon? You know, Rich, I look at really kind of all the moves that were made, even even outside Makai, with the offensive line, the receivers, you know, just getting our tight ends healthy. I think everybody's really helping everybody because if we have the vertical threat like I think we're going to have with the wide receivers now, hey, maybe we'll start seeing some more too high zone instead of them just focusing on one guy in the receiving core. You know, you get Chris Hernan back, you got Ryan Griffin, you got some guys that can do some – some different things there and stretch the field vertically, you know, that that was something Chris was really good at. Now all of a sudden Le'Veon seeing, you know, lighter boxes, which we didn't really see last year a lot. We, we saw loaded boxes for the most part. We didn't do a good enough job of winning in the passing game to open some of that stuff up. I do think that, you know, with the way that Joe's gone about and the personnel department's gone about building this thing, and, in, and helping the offensive line with the variety of bodies that we have in there and, and, you know, we feel like we've gained a lot of depth in that 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 room for sure. To where now all of a sudden the passing game's better, the run game's better. We're better up front now. Sam's starting to see some different coverages, some too high looks where he can check to runs. Le'Veon seeing lighter boxes. 
I do think it helps the run game enormously, you know, and, and, you know, when you're running back and you're constantly seeing seven, eight man boxes, you know, that can get frustrating. And you you know, you're basically, you're, a, you know, you're being forced to beat one guy every time. And if he can see some lighter boxes and some holes are popping open, all of a sudden he's in that secondary faster, you know, that, that energizes a running back for sure. So what are your expectations for Le'Veon this year? You know, I, you know, Rich, I'm not a big expectations guy. Um, I'm pretty sure that you understand, like, from that aspect of it, it's hard to predict the future with, with how, how this NFL is. Um, I will say this, I, I'm excited to get him going, put him in the best position possible, both in the run game and passing game. I do think that we have some guys that can help maybe lessen the load on him to where it's not all on him. I, 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 you know, hopefully we can get some of these younger backs to where, we can make a good one-two punch to where he can really, you know, excel instead of just feel like it's all on him all the time. Um, I do think we've added the right pieces, though, to, to the puzzle to help him do that. And plus you've been around him for a year, and so you know him a lot better now. What did you take away from last year? What can you do better as a play caller to help him? Because you took a lot of criticism last year because you didn't, you know, you didn't use Bell correctly. Uh, would you agree with some of that criticism? And if so, like, what can you do better to help him? You know, I think it's just, anytime you're around a guy for, for a full season, that, that helps you really prepare going into the next season. You know, one of the things that we try to do, we try to look at a lot of the Pittsburgh stuff that, that what they were doing and kind of how they went about it. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, they had different personnel up front. You know, we, we, we had different body types. They had, they had a, they had been together for a while too. Like those guys knew each other inside and out. I mean, that was a, that was a very talented group, both up front at the quarterback spot, Le'Veon, AB. I mean, they had a lot of guys that they just knew each other so well. I mean, they were, they were rolling pretty good. I think last year was a big time learning experience for us. I think heading into this, I think there is, there is a better emphasis on probably slimming down some of the things instead of trying to, figure it out like, hey, are we good at this or is it this? What scheme is it to where we have a better idea heading in this this season of, hey, these are the things that we really want to focus on. Let's get really good at this, um, you, especially in the passing game as well, just trying to make sure that I use him, you know, whether it be using him more in empty, spreading him out, creating one-on-one matchups, you know, is it more out of the backfield? Just I don't want to give away everything that we've kind of worked on, you know, leading up to this, but just, just trying to really emphasize what he does extremely well in getting him the ball in those situations. Well, as you know, you guys finished 32nd in total offense last year. And, um, you know, I think I may have mentioned. I'm glad you brought that up, Rich. Not that I know that. Not that, you know, not that I've ever written that before or, or mentioned it once <laughs> or twice in stories. Unfortunately, when that happens, you know, it kind of, it kind of sticks there for right. a while. Until, yeah, it does. Until you fix it. Um, how much pressure do you put on yourself? You're an offensive guy. So how much pressure do you put on yourself to, to get yeah, that I, I, I would say, Rich, it was extremely disappointing when you look at that ranking of where we were. You know, I, we had four games that were just horrendous. You know, obviously three of them we didn't have Sam in. One of them he was, he was involved in. But when you have a quarter of your season that are just just brutal offensively, you know, that's just – that's going to just take a, a massive toll on your overall statistics. Um, now, the good thing is, is we can point to a lot of things and say, hey, we were 32nd and we still finished 7-9. and nine. So we have a lot to we can improve on, 
And if we can improve on a lot of things on offense, that's going to help our defense out. That's going to help our special teams out. That's going to help our overall record out. So just if we can, if we just get that one part of our, that one phase fixed to where we're in sync with the other two phases, that's going to really help our overall record. Do you, I mean, you did, you know, you had a six and two finish last year to finish seven and nine. I think some people tend to forget that. Uh, you must have learned a lot about yourself and, and this team and this market. In what ways is Adam Gase going to be a better coach this year? Well, I think, you know, sometimes when you go through those those tough spells, you really find out, you know, a lot about not only yourself, but, you know, all the people that are around you and especially the players. You know, I, I'll, I remember Wayne Corbett was actually in our building the, the week where we were playing the Giants and, um, we came on Wednesday, Wednesday's practice, and, and that, you know, I remember Wayne saying, this will be a telling practice for you. You'll find out what kind of guys you really have. And I thought that was a, a very impactful statement by him because those guys came out, they practiced extremely hard. You would never know what our record was at the time. And that's when you, you kind of knew you were like, we got a chance to turn this around and head in the right direction because these guys – they all just focus on doing their job for that day. And then the next day we came out and had another good practice and then found a way to win that game. And, and really when you, when you got a bunch of guys that are all focused on just trying to get better day in and day out, that gives you a great opportunity to flip a season around when it's not really going the way you want it. So seven and nine, next step has to be playoffs, right? I mean, that, that, is this a playoff team? Does it have to be a playoff team? I think every season is so different, Rich. I mean, you, it's 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 trying to put yourself in position when you're playing meaningful games in January. You know that December January area. That's that's the that's the key to everything. Just put yourself in that position to where at least you can say, "Hey, if if we didn't make it, it was on us." You know, if, if you just want to put yourself in that position, it, it's it's tough to predict because. You just never know how the season's going to go. You never know how injuries are going to go. You never, you never know. Like we've seen teams, and I know that it's happened here. You know, in this division before, where a team goes eleven and five and they don't make the, the playoffs, and you know, how do you look at that season? So you know, you want to put yourself in position to where you're. It's on you to either make it or miss it. That's that's really what you want to try to put yourself in the position to do. No, Tom Brady. I mean, this is your chance. Well, I'm, we need to focus on ourselves, Rich. I know you. I know you guys all want to all want to focus on somebody else, but let's focus on us. That's probably a good approach. But uh, but anyway, I appreciate you stopping by, Adam. I know uh, I know you're a busy guy. You're probably doing some homeschooling with your kids too. Maybe taking some of the burden off your wife, which would which be a, which would be a good thing to do. Not, so not, the way I they would, teach things nowadays, the way they do math, it's just different. It, it's it's not as easy as as you would think it was. Every time I try to jump in there, I end up feeling like, wow, this is they do it a little different than than what I remember. Yeah, thank God we don't have to go back and do that. But uh, you know, it's it's a different world. <laughs> but anyway, thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your off season. Hopefully, we'll catch up soon, and uh, we'll we'll catch up. And thanks again for spending some time with us. No problem, Rich. Thank you for having me. And welcome back to the third quarter. It's the Twitter mailbag. And I think we set a record this week. We had over 150 responses on Twitter. I can't thank you enough. I think it just goes to show 
how passionate Jet fans are. So thank you very much. Let's get right to them. We have uh, at Ian Damon 3, how many of this year's draft picks do you see getting significant playing time? Well, for sure, Becton and Mims, I think we'll see significant time. As I said, I think Ashton Davis will be involved in the sub package. And then, to a lesser degree, uh, LaMichael Perrine, uh, probably spelling Le'Veon Bell. And, of course, Braden Mann, uh, unless his leg falls off, will be the punter this year. Uh, the other four picks do not see them factoring in this year for various reasons. Next one from at Mogefs. Any update on Quincy Anunua? With drafting only one wide receiver, they need him at full strength to complete uh, their arsenal weapons for Sam Darnold. Uh, I do not see Quincy Anunua on the team this year. Um, I think he's not healthy yet. I think with the neck injury, my gut is I think he ends up on the pup list for the season, IR, whatever you want to call it. His money's guaranteed, so they're not going to send him off. He's not going to retire unless they come up with some sort of settlement package. But I do not think Quincy Anunua will be playing for the Jets this year. So, next one from at Greg Semino, with a great last name, by the way. Uh, why didn't Joe D take another wide receiver? Uh, could they get Demarius Thomas back on a one-year deal? I'd be surprised if they go for Thomas. He was dealing with a chronic knee injury toward the end of the year. So, I just don't know... If he's going to be right, he was a really good locker room presence. I mean, the young receivers really gravitated toward him. I just don't think he has much left. Why'd they draft only one? Hey, great question, Greg. I have the same question. Joe said that they just, it just didn't happen. It didn't, it wasn't deliberate. He said when they were just, they were just going by their draft board, which is what every GM says when they try to justify a pick or not making a pick. I thought it was a mistake. You know, this draft was just loaded with receivers. I think that could come back to bite them. At 58-58, what do we got here? What happens with uh, Avery Williamson? Well, uh, I think they're going to, you know, keep him until training camp. I think he gives them some C.J. Mosley insurance in case Mosley has a, a setback on his groin injury. I think he's okay now, but you never know. And uh, they're, they got a lot of inside linebackers that I think Avery will be a guy that they will look to trade in the preseason. It's going to be hard, not impossible. He's got $6 million salary, so that's a big nut. But uh, I don't think he'll be on the team this year. Uh, at J.C. Katz, three years from now, will the Jets wish they had selected Wirfs instead of Becton? I do not think so. I think there was a clear gap on their draft board between Wirfs and Becton. I think they saw Wirfs as a right tackle, possibly even a guard. I don't think they saw left tackle in his future. So Becton has that left tackle um, premium, which is value. And, uh, you know, I think Wirfs is going to be a fine player for Tampa Bay. But uh, the Jets just saw a whole bunch more upside in uh, Becton. And I agree with that. Uh, let's see. At uh, Jenison Neal, what wide receiver do you see being released that the Jets might have some interest in? Well, here's a name to watch. Houston, Kenny Stills has a $7 million cap. I think he could be the odd man out in Houston. Uh, he, of course, played for Adam Gase in Miami. Uh, the only thing, that he is kind of like what they have already in Brashad Perryman and Denzel Mims, meaning more of a vertical receiver. 
But still, he's a guy that Gase knows. Uh, there'll be a lot of speculation about Alshon Jeffrey of Philadelphia because uh, he played for Gase in the past, and you know he probably doesn't factor into their future. They're going to take a big cap hit when they cut him. They just mismanaged his contract. He's got a $9.9 million guaranteed base salary. If they do trade him to the Jets, they obviously would not want to pay that much money. They'd have to redo the deal. If they cut him, they take a massive cap hit. I don't, I don't see it. He's coming off Liz Frank surgery. It's a serious operation for a wide receiver. He may not be ready till September. We may not have football in September, so maybe he'll get, he'll be able to buy some extra time. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Jeffrey, but I would say he's probably on their radar to some degree. Okay. Last one from at Slims42. Uh, is the backup quarterback on the roster or not? Well, right now it's David Fales who came back on a one-year deal, but uh, I do not think it would be a good idea to make him your backup quarterback. Uh, no offense to David Fales, who's a good guy and definitely knows the Gase offense, but come on. I mean, didn't they learn their lesson last year? You need to have good depth at quarterback in this league. It basically cost them their season last year. I think you have to go out and get a more experienced backup uh, the guy, you know, Matt Moore is still out there. He knows the Gase offense. Also, uh, there'll be a lot of speculation about Joe Flacco because of his past association with Joe Douglas. Flacco's coming off a serious neck injury, so I definitely beware of that. You know, Blake Bortles is out there. The Jets have to do something. They just can't go in with David Fales as their backup and James Morgan, the rookie, as their third guy. I think, I mean, it's like the old Parcells saying, how many times do you have to get hit in the face with a skunk before you realize it stinks? So the Jets got hit in the face with a skunk last year, and hopefully, for their sake, they learned their lesson. And welcome to the fourth quarter. I promised a big finish, and that's what you're going to get. So Mackay Becton is officially six foot seven, 364 pounds. So I got to thinking, where does that rank in the NFL? Where does that rank in team history? So I did some research, and I think you may get a couple of laughs out of this. Uh, actually, uh, our ESPN staff looked this up. So at the Combine, which they have data that goes back to 2006, Makai is tied for the heaviest player ever drafted who participated in the Combine. Uh, in 2009, LSU's Herman Johnson was 364 as well. He was a fifth-round pick of Arizona. Uh T.J. Barnes, a defensive tackle from Georgia Tech, was actually 369, but he was not drafted in 2013. He signed a free agent deal with Jacksonville and actually ended up playing with the Jets a couple of years later, but uh, 369. But Makai tied for the heaviest player at the Combine who was drafted. Now, Jet history. Now, I'm dating myself here, but I was there for this in 1988. It was the year before I became a full-time beat writer, but I was a backup beat writer on the Jets for Newsday. That year, they drafted a guy named Albert Goss, G-O-S-S, a defensive tackle in the 12th round out of Jackson State. Yeah, they had 12 rounds in those days. He was listed in their media guide at 6'7", 355. When they drafted him, they told him they wanted him down to 330 by the start of training camp. He said, sure, no problem. He shows up to minicamp. In May at 365. So Albert is moving in the wrong direction. They read him the riot act. They they tell him he's got to drop the weight. 
Now, other players told me they could have sworn they saw Albert in minicamp in the lunchroom downing eight cheeseburgers. Probably not the ideal way to drop the weight. So what happens when he shows up in late July at training camp? He tips the scales at 369. Basically, as soon as he got on the scale and they saw 369, they cut him. They absolutely cut him on the first day of training camp. And we never heard from Albert Goss again. He never played a down of football, never signed with another team. One step on the scale, boom, his career was over. He was so big that Cosby's, which was the sporting goods store in New York that supplied the Jets, they said his shoulder pads were a 5X, which is the largest they had ever seen, even bigger than Refrigerator Perry, who was the legendary big man of the Chicago Bears. So Albert Goss... We hardly remember ye, but in terms of the biggest player in Jet history, team historian Randy Lang of the Jets website came up with this one, and I was there for this one, so I remember it. Chester McLaughlin in 2003 was listed on the flip card at 371 pounds, and frankly, I think that was on the conservative side. Chester was not a mountain of a man. He was a mountain range. He was a really good player for the Raiders and Chiefs, and the Jets picked him up early in the preseason. Their GM at the time, Terry Bradway, knew Chester from the Chiefs, so he brought in a familiar face. And here's how big and out of shape Chester was. The Jets' first preseason game that year was in Tokyo, Japan, against Tampa Bay. They told Chester to stay home. Now, of course, we were joking was was that he was so big that he couldn't get on the plane because it would have been excess cargo. But the real reason was... They wanted him to go on a crash diet and work out with their strength coach while they were gone with the hope that he'd be able to practice when they got back. So Chester did end up playing for the Jets that year. Not very well, but he did play. But the one lasting memory I have, and I remember this like it was yesterday, I'm in the locker room interviewing Wayne Corbett, and we were interrupted by this loud noise on the other side of the locker room. So we both look over. In fact, several reporters and players all look over. And there he is, Chester McLaughlin, the mountain range, laying flat on his back in front of his locker, sound asleep, snoring, snoring so loudly that I think the college students at Hofstra in their dorm room a quarter mile away may have heard him. I mean, it shook the walls. And so that is my memory of Chester McLaughlin. That is his legacy with the Jets, uh, the snoring. And man, and that was just unbelievable that day. Chester McLaughlin, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not even sure if he played anywhere again after that season. But yeah, I promised you a big finish. So I don't think Makai Becton is going to be that. Everyone says he, he'll be in good shape. We'll see. I wish him the best. And uh, I thank you again for checking in on Flight Deck. We really appreciate you listening. Rate us, subscribe to us. You can get us anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts, any of the ESPN platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. Pick us up. Give us a listen. Thanks to my producer, Jeff Scopin. Appreciate you all stopping by, and we will be back soon. Thanks.